What is up, guys? Welcome to the Reborn Podcast. Today, I had the opportunity to sit down with Rich Devinney, who spent more than 20 years as a Navy SEAL and a leader, including 13 overseas deployments. He is the author of the book, The Attributes, 25 Hidden Drivers of Optimal Performance. Uh, he's retired since 2017 and uh, has worked as a speaker facilitator and a consultant with Chaplin & Co., to learn more about Rich and the attributes, you can visit attributes.com where you can take an attribute assessment and determine how to optimize your performance for both strengths and potential developments. Also, you can find him on his social media via Instagram at Rich Divini, R-I-C-H underscore D-I-V-I-N-E-Y. Um, on Twitter, he is at Rich Divini and Facebook, it's at the attributes. Rich, welcome to the Reborn podcast. What is up, Rich? Thanks for joining me today on the Reborn podcast. How's it going? It's going great. How I, are you doing? I've heard lots of great things about you with uh, Dr. G, Dr. Yes. Lyon, Ms. Gabrielle herself. She is an awesome, awesome human. Oh, I know. She really is. And I, uh, it, I've, I've, it's been a pleasure to get to know her. And actually, she was here in Virginia Beach, uh, uh, I guess, uh, well, probably a month ago now. So we got to got to hang out and have, have uh, we didn't have dinner. We just had to have appetizers, but really just get, get to visit. So it was, yeah. it was fun. That's awesome. Well, she has so many great things uh, to talk about with you. And so I was really excited to get you on the podcast today and really just talk about leadership. I want to talk about the book uh, that you have out, The 25 Attributes. I think it's extremely interesting, and I know that a lot of the listeners can really get value um, from listening just from the brains behind the book. But before we get into that, can you just give everybody that's listening kind of like a... Uh, I mean, you've accomplished so much in your career. <laughs> so just tell everybody who you are and what you've accomplished. Yeah, I mean, well, it all started uh, in in Connecticut. <laughs> I grew up wanted to be a pilot, a Navy pilot, my brother and I. Um, so I was really kind of bent on the Navy, and um, and in that process, of course, everything was Navy focused. But it was after the Gulf, the first Gulf War, I, I learned about the Navy SEALs. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool, and and went to ended up at uh, Purdue uh, University in an RTC program, and really was kind of saying, okay, should I be a SEAL? Should I try for SEAL? Should I try for pilot? And and ultimately, kind of said to myself, well, I I pretty was pretty sure I knew I could be a pilot, but mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a pilot and wonder if I could be a SEAL. So, so I decided to go SEALs. Fortunately, I got a, a, a spot and made it through training. So that's good because <laughs> the odds are, the odds are always low, but, um, but yeah, I joined up in 1996 and, uh, and of course had a very kinetic dynamic career after 2001, uh, was a part of, uh, of, of several SEAL commands to include, um, development group, which I spent most of my career, and that's really when I I ran the assessment selection there. Was so a commanding I, officer there. I, I want to stop so. you for a second. Being yeah. a pilot, obviously, there are some risks with being yes. a pilot, right? A lot of them out of our control. Maybe some of them in our control. Now, on the contrary, we have and then you learned about this Navy SEAL stuff, mm -hmm. right? Going into combat, combat more one-on-one -on -one type tactics and defense measures. How did your mindset shift? What was it that made you go from something being a pilot? Yeah, sure, it's you know there's it's exciting, and I'm sure there's unknowns with being a pilot, but be wanting to go through the pipeline of becoming a Navy SEAL, uh, there's a lot more risks involved. What was there it are. for you that that changed that mindset? 
I'll be quite honest with you. I don't think the mindset had to change because I don't think at that moment you're thinking about risk. I mean, you're you're 22 years old and um, and you just want to do something fun, exciting. You want to see if you're if you can be someone uh, special and see if you can do something very few people can do. And so, so I think you never at that at those ages you don't think about risk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think. I mean, most of us, I guess. Um, yeah. So yeah, there wasn't much of a mindset. It was really mu- it was much more about. I wanted to see if I could do it, and I didn't. And I wanted to test myself in ways that I'd never been tested. And and just to be honest with you, also, I, I love being underwater. I, I, I'm I'm the most comfortable underwater. So the fact that the seals were always underwater, and they they made they made the water their home, I was just like, oh man, that's really kind of badass. Yeah. Uh, that was ironic that because as soon as the war started, we were in Iraq and Afghanistan, and nowhere near the water. But you know, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was, I started with the with the SDV team, so I was underwater quite a bit. So did your uh, did your youth like did you have uh, water sports in your youth, or what? Where did your love for water come from? Well, we grew up in Connecticut on this on Long Island Sound, so we'd go mm-hmm. to the beach every day, um, and uh, yeah, so we just swim every day. And I just loved I loved being in the beach, on the beach. Uh, well, not even on the beach. I was always in the water. I'd spend all my time in the water. Yeah. <laughs> so it was just fun. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. So you had a very successful career mm-hmm. um, being a Navy SEAL. And how long have you been retired? Boy, it's, a, uh, it's five years now, 2017. Mm. January 1st, 2017 was my first day as a civilian. So, uh, yeah. How was that transition for you? It was fine. You know, again, you know, for me, I had done almost 21 years. I was an officer. I had I had done pretty much everything that I wanted to do in the teams. The next steps were, you know, captain 06 and then after that admiral. And those are all really fine roles. Um, and I have friends who are still in those roles. Uh, but for me, I, I didn't have a lot of interest uh, in 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 moving down that road or continuing to move that down down that road. So so it was a it was somewhat of a natural progression. I think I think the what you have to get used to is you just lose that daily uh, camaraderie. Right. Um, but uh, but you know as you're getting ready to retire, depending on your pathway, sometimes sometimes that's eased into anyway because you get out of the the platoon or the troop cycles. You're kind of on this path of transition, and you're not really in the game anymore. And so so no, for me, I have to I have to say it was it was it was it wasn't too bad. And I also have a very, very strong family relationship. My wife and I are, are, are a strong unit. We've been married for 21 years. And so, so you know, when you have that identity as a, such a strong thing to, yeah. to, to fall back on, there's, there's not, a lot of, not a lot of trauma. What was it that inspired you to, um, to write your book? The, um, yeah, so when I was running training and assessment for development group, uh, one of the things that I, I was asked to do was articulate um, in a better way, why guys weren't making it through our pipeline. And, and the way that works over there is you, you get a bunch of really top dudes from all the regular SEAL teams. They come to, come to us and, and we put them through our own nine month selection program. And, and we got about a 50% attrition rate. And of course that's okay because, you know, any assessment selection implies attrition, but what wasn't okay at the time was we weren't able, we were, we were giving bad reasons, right? This guy didn't make it because he couldn't shoot very well. or couldn't do this very well. It's all kind of very skills based. And, and they asked me, and it didn't make sense because these guys were good top dudes, right? Um, and so uh, they asked me, hey, we need to articulate this better just so we we have more credibility and we're not having scrutiny and we can we can send these guys off a little bit more professional development. And that's when I really started looking into the into performance. And I really when I started looking into it and really kind of thinking about it, I said, Well, it's amazing because we don't 
we're not considering a lot of performance when we're looking at these skills. And I, I just thought about my own career. You know, I, I know you're, you're familiar with SEAL training, BUDS, you know, and BUDS is six months long and, and 90% attrition, right? And you spend hundreds of hours running around with big, heavy boats on your head, and you spend hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles and freezing the surf zone. At, at that point in my career, I had done hundreds of combat missions overseas. I'd done thousands of training evolutions. And I can tell you, never on one of those did I carry a heavy boat on my head or a 300-pound telephone pole, right? So, so what they were doing to us in those moments wasn't training us in the skills to be SEALs. They were teasing out these other qualities, these attributes. And that's when I really started diving into this stuff. And then, of course, as, I, as it really uh, worked there, I got out of the Navy. I was in the leadership culture space, but I was really kind of always keyed into this human performance stuff. And, um, and after a couple of years, uh, realized it, I had an opportunity to write this book uh, about really, it started as, a, you know, write a book about high-performing teams mm-hmm. and, and turned into, okay, well, let me start with this one thing, yeah. attributes and your skills, and it, it worked out nicely. That's really interesting. Well, with your research and everything that you've done, what do you think is like the one common cause that guys don't make it through the pipeline or the training? Is there one common thing that you see time and time again? Well, if we can answer that question, Ashley, we'd, we'd have the million dollar question answered, right? So uh, the, the the SEAL community has been trying to answer the, that question for for its since its inception. What are those things? Can we pre-predict? Can we better predict the guys are going to make through it? Um, and so one of the things I never got to do, which I would have loved to do, was go out and run uh, regular SEAL training like BUDS. That would have been that would have been a fun role. Um, but my friends have done it, and so I've studied it. Uh, I can't tell you what it is. What I can tell you is that the the guys who do make it through, um, if I were to pick, obviously there's grit attributes in there, right? There's courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. And maybe they're to, they're to like extra high levels. But one of the attributes that I think is probably the most important for anybody who makes it through is, uh, is the mental acuity attribute compartmentalization. Um, every guy who makes it through that training has to be a master compartmentalizer uh, and be able to, in, in moments compartmentalize almost to micro levels to, to just focus in on the, on what's in the, on the moment and block out everything else. Mm-hmm. If you can't do that, you're not going to make it. And, um, and I think, and I think the, 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 the trick to, to predicting whether guys are going to make it through or not, um, would be if, if we were able to, I don't know if you're even, we'd be even able to do this would be to kind of look at someone's past and see, if there were moments in their upbringing or their lives that allowed them to practice that attribute, um, obviously they have it, but also develop it in certain ways. Um, because I think we all show the guys who made it through all showed up with an ability to do that. You don't, you don't learn really how to do that necessarily when you're in the moment because you get thrown into, into the shit right away. So, so I think compartmentalization is the one thing, uh, that, that, that's the key criteria. What were you hoping to, to, the message for the 25 attributes for civilians, people who are listening to this and they're like, okay, I'm nowhere near a Navy SEAL. I'm just trying to run a business, take care of my family, uh, be the best version of myself. How is this like a, a correlation to, you know, what you learned in the teams, what you learned by studying and, and just all of this data to writing the book? How can the civilian world uh, benefit from this book? Well, I'm glad you asked it because the book is written for the civilian world. It's not a SEAL book, um, and I didn't want to write an I didn't want to write another Navy SEAL book. There's plenty out there, and a lot of them are good books. And some a lot of you know, a lot of them my friends wrote, right? So they're all good books. But I didn't want to write a book about SEALs. This is a book about the reader. So, so what I did was 
I took the attributes that I discovered and kind of played with when I was in the Navy SEALs, and I said, okay, let's let's look at those as a baseline. And then how do I ubiquitize this in a way that is for human beings? And that's where I kind of said, okay, well, these are the attributes for optimal performance. Optimal performance is a human being thing. It's not just a Navy SEAL thing. And so, and so that's how I kind of made it, humanized it really. And then I wanted to kind of put a, um, a business spin on it too. I mean, you know, you know I, would, I would be giving talks about high-performing teams to businesses and organizations. And then a lot of times they come up to me and say, hey, we're, we're building these dream teams, the best, best people, best graphics designer, best marketing person, best whatever. And they're going, they're, they're doing pretty well when things are going well. But as soon as the, the things turn sideways or things don't go as planned, they tend to, talk, to fall apart and turn toxic. And they said, you know, their question would be, what's going on? And at that point, I was like, well, it's, it's pretty obvious to me. You're picking your teams based on skills, not attributes. And so I realized that there was a need there was a message that could be sent. So, so I think the the individual can read this book and start to recognize and learn how and why they show up the way they do, in, especially during stress, challenge, uncertainty. These attributes, these attributes are 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 running in the background at all times, but they show up the most viscerally and visibly during stress, challenge, and uncertainty. So we can, by understanding our levels of these attributes, we start to understand why we behave the way we do, especially when shit goes sideways, right? And that's, I think that's, I think that's valuable for everybody because, because it's going to go sideways, you know? And so the individual can do that. And then the teams and businesses can say, okay, how can I do this on my team? How can I build the best team that I possibly can build and, and know what those elemental things that I need for that team are. So, uh, so that's what was the real fun part about, about writing the book. And as you know, cause you, you read it, there's a couple seal things in there, but there's a lot of family stuff. There's a lot of other stories. It's, um, it's kind of, I tried to pepper it with, a whole bunch of different stuff. Yeah. How, I'm just curious, how, how would you best develop trust on your team? Um, I have a couple different businesses and I think there's so many young entrepreneurs coming up and I think that this is a really great question mm-hmm. um, to kind of discuss and break down. But that's a big thing. Like when you're an entrepreneur, you're doing it yourself, it's your baby. And then you got to start letting go as things grow. If you want things to grow, you have to let go of certain things. Yeah. How do you, how do you develop and build that trust within a team? Yeah, what a great question and a very a very deep one. And because we actually we have workshops on trust that we give because it's such a deep topic. But what I will say is, um, trust is often thought of as a feeling. Mm-hmm. Okay, I feel like I trust this person. I feel like I trust this thing. Um, but a feeling defined is just a human emotion. That's all it is, right? So trust is more than just a human emotion. When we were doing this work and we kind of recognized that trust is in fact a belief because a belief defined is a human emotion that's been rationalized or justified by that human being. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's right or wrong, it just matters that it has been. So, so to, to form a belief, we have to make a decision or to decide to believe something. What, tell, what this tells us is that trust is about how we behave. In other words, the way we behave towards other human beings is what allows them to decide to trust us. We can't make anybody trust us. All we can do is behave in a way that allows them to choose to decide to trust us. And these behaviors largely stem from attributes, authenticity, integrity, um, humility, uh, selflessness. I mean, all these, all these attributes start to lend themselves to these behaviors that lead to trust. In fact, the leadership attributes that I talk about in the book, all of those leadership attributes also are the same attributes that develop trust, right? So, so as, as leaders in, of teams or in our organizations, what we have to recognize is if we want to build an environment of trust, we have to behave that way. So we have to start modeling the behavior that we want to see more of so that it generates those environments and then reward 
the behavior we want to see more of, right? So in other words, if you want to, if you want more empathy on your team, you have to start showing empathy and you have to start rewarding empathy. A lot of times, especially in the entrepreneurial space, and I would say the entrepreneurial the entrepreneurial space is a is a little bit separate just because it's just a fast moving, it's a fast moving uh, endeavor. But there's a point at which the entrepreneurial effort starts to shift and mold into a long term effort, and that's when that's when business owners or entrepreneurs need to have, need to be really careful about forming these trust bonds really deeply because to play the long game you're going to need to do that and so um, and so you have to you have to it's just, it's really often that in that space um, the skills are rewarded results are rewarded right and that's there's nothing wrong with that but if if it's only results only results only results then all of your trust is going to be built off of visible tangible things and it's going to be only a small portion. And when those tangible things fail, the trust goes out the window too. So, so trust has to be formed um, based on how you behave. And a lot of those behaviors show, do I care about this person? Do I have character? Um, am I consistent? Am I competent? Right? Those types of, form, uh, those types of relationships. Do you have any advice for uh, the interview process when it comes? Because a lot of this, I, whenever I bring on a new hire, I create, it's called like a scorecard. Or like mm-hmm. um, like an avatar of who I'm looking for because yeah. it's so easy to I don't know get distracted on different things whenever you have a, a potential new hire. D- is there any sort of systems or processes that you go through or advice that you can give anybody um, sitting down and, and interviewing somebody? How do you know that they're uh, a good fit for the team? Is it a trial period? Because <laughs> to me nowadays, resumes, interviews, they really don't mean anything because right. anybody can build whatever they want on a resume and act however they want. There, however they think they should act, um, right. you know, within like 30 minutes. Um, what are some of like, what are some experiences that you have had that can really just help um, entrepreneurs or people building a team make the right hire? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, and the, there's a couple, there's a couple ways to kind of pick that apart. Um, the first thing that we have to recognize in the interview process is, is we have to know what we're looking for. Okay, because if we don't know what we're looking for, then it's a moot point. And so, so some of the some of the work we do with organizations and teams is we help them figure out what attributes they're looking for in their organization. Because that list is going to look different depending on the organization. The the, the the attribute lists that a Navy SEAL team needs is going to look different than the attribute list that a, a marketing team needs or or a sales team needs or whatever. So, we, so we first find out that list, find out what we're looking for from an attributes perspective. And then you ask yourself, okay, do these questions, if it's just an interview, do these questions inflict enough uh, stress, challenge, and uncertainty, start teasing out these attributes. As soon as you start to inflict a little bit of stress, challenge, uncertainty, discomfort, you start to get past um, what someone can kind of have rehearsed, okay? I'll give you an example here because I, I think it's a, it's a really easy one to understand. I Imagine you and I wanted to hire someone who is great at sales, Okay. And you and I tell this person on a Friday, we say, hey, come in Monday morning and you're going to sell us this pencil, okay? We wait the weekend, we come in Monday morning, this person comes in, proceeds to give us a kick-butt presentation on the pencil. We're like, oh my gosh, they bl- blows our mind, looks great. Unfortunately, we would not have learned very much. All we would have learned is that person is really good at going home, preparing a presentation and giving a presentation. So instead, what we do is on Friday, we tell them, come in Monday and you're going to sell us this pencil, Okay. They come in Monday morning. When they come in, we say, hey, the plans change. You're no longer selling us this pencil. You're going to sell us this notepad, mm. okay? And, and oh, by the way, there's no audio visual. So just have at it, okay? Now, at that point, you and I have to make a deliberate decision to divorce ourselves from skills assessment because what we're about to see is probably going to be ugly, but we're not looking at skills anymore. How does this person respond? Do they 
go with it? Are they humorous? Do they make stuff up? Do they kind of just make things happen? Or do they kick the dirt? Do they make excuses? Do they spiral down? Now we're looking at attributes. We've inflicted some uncertainty. Now that's an experiential, and the experiential environments are the best environments to tease and test out attributes. Um, you can do it with interview questions as well. You just have to ask questions in a way that put people a little bit off guard and get them thinking in ways that they didn't think they would think, right? And uh, and that's how you start to start to do that. But the the most important thing is you have to know which attributes you're looking for, because if you don't know that, then it's just like shooting in the dark. Right. You have no idea what you're looking for. Right. Um, that's really interesting. I, I want to talk a little bit about um, the difference between optimal performance versus uh, peak performance. Sure. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And this is a kind of an epiphany I came to. Um, well, it's interesting that I had always thought about this. I, I was... It was right before I was going to retire. I was out in in San Francisco area, and I was at this event where we were we were try, we were looking at putting together some some human performance stuff for some executives. A buddy of mine had had invited me, and he said, "Hey, I want to, when you're there, I want you to meet this this scientist. You're going to love him. His name is Andrew Huberman. I don't know if you know Andrew Huberman, but he has a great podcast, Huberman Lab. So Andrew and I met, and Andrew and I started talking about performance, and it was it was our discussions. We were we were thinking about this concept. We were like, well. You know, peak is just annoying yeah. <laughs> because it doesn't tell us the right story. And the idea is peak is um, an apex. That's what it is. And there's only one place you can go from an apex, and that's down. You know, and and peak has to be usually scheduled for and planned for and prepared for. In other words, the, the professional football player plans and schedules his entire week so that he can peak for three hours on Sunday. But that's not us, and that's not a lot. Of, that's not realistic. And so I kind of defined it as optimal performance. And Andrew and I kind of hashed this out together because he was studying fear in his lab, and so we kind of gelled on that. Um, optimal performance is how can I perform? How can I do the best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment, or 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 better to say, I'm going to do the best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in the moment. Sometimes our best looks like peak. Okay. Everything's clicking. There's flow states. Everything's awesome, right? Sometimes our best, however, is I am just head down, nugging it out, going step by step because that's all I have right now. And it's dirty and it's ugly and it's gritty and it's hard, okay? That is still performing optimally. And so optimal performance allows us to do a couple things. First of all, it allows us to celebrate those times when we are just head down, nugging it out, going step by step because that's that's what you're doing. And I say, you know, just thinking about my time in in SEAL training, basic SEAL training, freezing in the surf zone and surf torture, okay? There was nothing peak about my performance, mm-hmm. okay? I was doing the best I could in the moment, and that moment was, the best I could in the moment was just don't quit, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, that is still optimal performance. That's still doing the best you can. And then there's this idea of, of, of appropriate energy management, okay? I don't need to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store, all right? I can be managing my energy in a way that, that allows me to be aerobic in my activities, versus anaerobic all the time. And I kind of this I hit upon this. I was working with a trainer friend of mine and he had trained a bunch of seals and he was making me push this weighted sled on on astroturf and he was timing he was like had a stopwatch on me. I was like what are you timing? What what are you doing there? He's like, "Well, I'm I'm looking at your aerobic capacity and your anaerobic capacity. Like how 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 fast you come out of the gate pushing it and then how long it takes you to the, to the, go to the end." And I said uh, I said, "What do what do, what do you see me doing?" He's like, "Well, when you when you start, you start at the very same pace that you finish, right? So you go the same pace the whole time. And he said, usually athletes, they'll, they'll explode out, right? And then they'll slow down as they get to the end because they're tiring. I said, well, what do you see most SEALs do? He said, most SEALs do it like you do it. 
I was like, that was very, there's it, it, a bell went off in my head because that's because SEALs think aerobically, mm-hmm. right? We will never, ever go out of the gates mm-hmm. with everything we got unless it requires everything we've got going out of the gate. And one of the, one of the myths I usually bust for people because they see it on movies and TV is they see a bunch of SEALs getting ready to do a mission and they're all like in a group and they're high-fiving, they're hoo-yawing and they're like rah, rah, rahing. And that doesn't happen at all, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, most of the time we'd be in a helicopter on the way into a mission or into combat and guys would be sleeping. Mm-hmm. Right, because they don't know they're saving all of their energy. We don't know what's coming. We don't know how long we're going to be out there. We don't know what, what's going to be required. I'm not going to waste an ounce of my energy while I'm sitting here if I don't need to. That op- optimal performance, that level of energy management, allows us to peak on demand and recover on demand. And it's much more realistic to playing the long game. And that's why we talk about it the way we do. So I, I want to. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask this question. So when someone's listening to this and they're like, okay, conserve the energy, conserve the energy, but how does one find the courage and how do they suppress the fear? Like for the example of like Mm -hmm. the fear of failure, unknown rejection, um, you know, when coming up to a solution or evaluating a problem, how how do you, how do you work on that? Well, a couple of things we have to understand about fear. And it's another, this is why Andrew and I gelled so much. We kind of geeked out on this. Um, Fear is a combination of two things. All right. Fear is a combination of uncertainty plus anxiety, okay? In other words, you can have either one of those, but you don't have fear. So you can be um, you can be anxious, but not uncertain. That's like, okay, I'm going to give a presentation next week to my to my colleagues, okay? I'm a little anxious about it, a little nervous, but, my, you know, it's my colleagues. I know what's, it's, it's, there's prediction, predictability there. So that's anxious without uncertainty. You can be uncertain without being anxious, okay? Well, that's every kid on Christmas Eve, all right? Uncertain and no anxiety. When you combine the two, fear sets in. That's when our amygdala starts to get tickled and our autonomic arousal goes up, our threat detector goes up. And one of the things you have to understand is as our autonomic arousal goes up and the amygdala is getting tick, uh, tickled, we're, we're given, we're presented with two choices, okay? We all know these choices. They're either fight or flight, okay? Now, some we've, we've, we've seen some literature back you know a, a while ago that added freeze into that mix, but freeze neurologically is really just an oscillation between the two. It's a decision mm. point. Interesting. But if you're going to fight or flight, okay, that's a, that's a specific circuit in the brain. There's a circuit that gets flipped if you flee. There's a circuit that gets flipped if you, if you fight, okay? When we choose to step into our fear mm-hmm. and that circuit is flipped, that is the card circuit, okay? And what happens when, that, when we do that is we get a dopamine reward for it. Right. And again, dopamine, again, most people have heard about dopamine as a pleasure chemical. Dopamine is not a pleasure chemical. It's a neuromodulator that's a uh, really more of a motivation chemical. It tells us this is good. Keep doing this. Right. But think about that. When we step into our fear, we get a we get a burst of this saying this is good. Keep doing this. Okay, so fear is not necessarily a bad thing. Fear actually gets us moving. It gets us out exploring. It gets us looking at different things, right? Now, all this says, I said, I want to make sure I hit the, the base of your question. If someone starts to get autonomically aroused where they are, it starts to be difficult for them to do anything. Again, this, is, this makes sense because as our autonomic arousal goes up and this happens, we start getting that amygdala, uh, that amygdala, um, gets more and more tickled, we start to approach amygdala hijack. Our conscious mind begins to go take a back seat. And if we hit amygdala hijack, then we're acting without thinking. Okay, that's not good for any fear-based situation. So to get our conscious mind back into the into the mix, we have to bring our autonomic arousal down. You can actually do that by doing some physiological things, breathing, some breathing techniques, some, some visual techniques, a couple of easy visual techniques. There's something called open gaze. 
when we're when we're in a fear state or autonomically aroused, our, our our pupils will get focused in. And we could call it tunnel vision. We focus in on the threat. Okay, so we'll get dialed in on the threat. They've found that if we deliberately go open gaze, open gaze is if you could just imagine staring staring out in front of you, and you're not even staring at what you're looking at. You're actually just noticing all your peripheries, right? Open gaze, panoramic vision. That has been proven to start bringing you down off of autonomic arousal. So panoramic vision is a really good one because you can do it anywhere. And I used to do this because I did not like public speaking at all when I got out of the Navy. And I said to myself, well, since I don't like this and since I'm afraid of it, I should probably do it. So I started doing it. And what I do is I get on the stage sometimes and I just start going, oh, panoramic vision, start bringing my autonomic arousal down. Um, So that's one way visually. There's breathing techniques. We can do uh, CO2 blowout breathing. People may have heard of box breathing. Box breathing is uh, is a is a form of breathing where you're you're inhaling for a certain period of time, say four seconds. You're holding on top for four seconds. You're exhaling for four seconds, and then you're holding on the bottom for four seconds. That's called box breathing. That, I was just doing that. Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> and you know what? You know what you can do. What that's wonderful for maintaining your autonomic uh, arousal state. So, in other words, you can be right at the state you want. You're you're aroused the way you need to be aroused. You don't need to calm down. You don't need to go up. Box breathing allows you to maintain that. It uh, it's, it creates equilibrium there. If you want to decrease your arousal, then you just change that breathing pattern. You say, okay, I'm going to inhale for four. I'm going to hold for four. Now I'm going to blow out for eight, and I'm going to hold on the bottom for eight. That's CO2 blowout breathing. What you don't a lot of us don't recognize is a lot of stress happens in our body when we have CO2 buildup, okay? This, by the way, is why we feel the urge to breathe when we hold our breath underwater or something. We feel like it's because we need oxygen, but in fact, it's because there's CO2 building up in our system. This is how you, this is how seals and certainly the, the free divers can get, can hold their breath for so long, right? Because you know you can move past that discomfort because you have enough oxygen in your system. You don't want to do it too much, and I don't recommend people try this because you could pass nobody, out. But, nobody yeah. try this unless <laughs> you're supervised. This. Yeah, unless you're supervised. But uh, but but the idea is our body gets agitated with CO2 buildup. So yeah. one of the ways we can come off autonomic arousal is to this CO2 uh, CO2 blowout breathing. So that's another way we can do it with breath. But but that brings our autonomic arousal down, brings our frontal lobe back online, allows us to now start asking better questions and making some decisions and being logical about how we want to address the. The, the stress challenge and uncertainty in our mind. So a long answer, but you know, hopefully that, that covers some stuff. No, it was, it was good. Um, I always wondered if the whole breathing thing, if it was because you're just, you're starting to count, you're becoming aware of your breathing and you're starting to count your breath. So it's taking your mind, it is bringing it back into the conscious space, but it's taking your mind off of whatever was, uh, yeah, I was, guess was doing. I, I I would buy that. I think that's part of it. I think yeah. I think none of this is none of this acts. None of these things act independently of themselves. There's a lot of stuff going on that helps. But I think that yeah, that 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 focusing in on that breathing is certainly part of the process. Yeah. So you write um, that finding the right balance of rigidity and adaptability is essential. Um, are there any markers that you know of to, to kind of see these things happening that you should? I don't know, employ one over the other? <laughs> yeah, this was a, we, I, we were talking about the discipline chapter uh, and the, the difference between discipline and self-discipline, whereas self-discipline, well, so discipline holistically is the ability to kind of uh, set and pursue and, 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 and kind of go through the wickets of achieving a long-term goal, regardless of what, uh, what's happening. But, but it's a goal that the outside world has a say as to whether or not you achieve. Um, it's like, you know, could be writing a book, becoming a SEAL, you know, you know, becoming a, an executive somewhere, right? Self-discipline uh, is the ability to, to, uh, to achieve goals that the external world has no say 
in whether or not you achieve. So that'd be like eating properly, getting in shape, things like that, right? We can, you know, someone can decide to eat properly and get in shape, and then they're at the Vegas buffet the next week, and the buffet is not going to throw pastries at them, right? I mean, it's their decision. There's no, and so there's a difference. And and one of the things I discovered as I looked at this, um, and looked, had did some introspection as well. But you know, I know I've seen people who are very highly self-disciplined. In other words, they have everything locked in in their in their physical body and the way they eat and the way they manage their lives, right? Uh, but they have accomplished nothing in the in like the big big term stuff. And then of course there's the opposite the opposite of that where there's people who've accomplished great things, but they have miserable self-discipline. They, they have no control of their own lives. Um, they can't discipline themselves. So so the balance between rigidity and adaptability is the key because the self-disciplined person night needs rigidity. I mean rigidity helps with that self-disciplined person. One of the reasons why some people who are very, very highly self-disciplined. One of the reasons why they have trouble sometimes with those long-term goals is any long-term goal that the outside world has a say in is going to throw things at you that get you off balance, that 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 knock you off course. The 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 the, the rigid, self-disciplined person hates to be knocked off course, right? It's it's anathema to what they want to do, right? So it's very uncomfortable for them. But meanwhile, the the person who's really good at that, at discipline. They don't need structure at all. <laughs> and in fact, when things are not going on course, like, yeah, fine, that's right. But they can't, but they don't like structure, right? Which is which is um, which is hard to to uh, to do anything in, in the self-discipline realm. So so I think rigidity and adaptability means having a balance between being self-disciplined and understanding, okay, I need a structure, I need a rigidity um, to accomplish this thing um, that the external world has no say in. Um, and but I also need the adaptability so that when the outside outside world hit, hits me off course, it doesn't it doesn't bother me as much as it usually does, right? I can I can shift, I can mold, I can be, get back into my routine. So so the most powerful, the most successful folks we've seen out there have a balance between the two um, because they can they can modulate between the two. Yeah, I find um, one of the for me being a parent sometimes it's like, you know, you see, it's like, how do you like disciplining your kids and, and setting the own, your own boundaries and, um, you know, not necessarily listening to, or even doing what the, the rest of the world is doing or allowing, mm-hmm. you know, their family to do, but to create your own, to create your yeah. own rules. Yeah. Um, so what's next for rich? Are you, do you have another book in the pipeline? Where can people buy your book? Where can they book you to speak? It sounds like, um, do you ever come over to American brew? Uh, I, I, yeah. When was the last time I was there? I can't remember when the last time I was there, but, uh, well, then it's been too long. I'll certainly spot, stop by. Yes. Um, I will. Um, so where, where can people buy your book if they want to book you to help with their company to speak? Um, tell us, give us all of that info. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the attributes.com is the website, right? And you can get, you can pretty much get everything there. You can get the book there. The book's obviously on Amazon and anywhere books are sold, but you can get the book there. We have a free assessment tool on the, on the site. You can figure out where, where you stand on some of the attributes, the grit, mental acuity, drive attributes. You can get, we have blog posts. You can uh, fill out a type form if you want to work with us, either speaking or, or we do, we do uh, speaking, we do consulting, we go into organizations and help organizations figure out their attributes and help them with their hiring processes and things like that. So we do all of that. And we have workshops we can give. Uh, so all of that's there on the website, uh, theattributes.com, plus the social media handles are there as well uh, for LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, all the requisite ones. Um, and then what's next? I mean, I, yes, I'm starting to put together the next book. And I'm. Uh, it's going to be probably centered around um, what I really, what I talk about high-performing teams being, what I've always talked about the Navy SEALs being, 
I used to always say, hey, the Navy SEALs, it's not, it's never about us being great shooters or scuba divers or, or skydivers. What we actually are is we are masters of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, we are people who can be dropped into very ambiguous, uncertain, complex environments, and we can we can figure it out and perform. Mm-hmm. It's not always pretty, but we can still do it, right? So I'm gonna I so I'm I'm gonna write about how to become a master of uncertainty, both as an individual and as a team, because there are specific things you can do to create that for yourself. Um, because I think a lot of people feel like the world's uncertain right now. And yeah. um, and so what we don't want to have happen is people to get stalled. We want people to be able to to be able to move through that. Um, and again, the caveat is it might not be pretty, <laughs> but at least you're moving, right? What was that? I think that's Teddy Roosevelt's, I, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt who said, um, if you, um, if you're, if you're moving along and you find yourself in hell, just keep moving, right? Yeah, so <laughs> just keep going. Yeah. Keep Keyword, going. Right? Just keep going. That's, yeah, that's the idea. Uh, what's the best advice that you've ever received? Ah, uh, best advice I've ever received, boy. Um, boy, that's a that's a book in and of itself. I think. It's yeah. great. Let, let, let me let me let me give you one piece. I'm not sure if the, this is a really good piece. I'd have to really think if there was a best. But um, I uh, I was well. I will say one of the best pieces is in the book. It's yeah. um, it's beware the fearless leader. Mm. Okay, because because again, we talk about courage and and we talk about that courage uh, uh, switch. Um, that courage switch is not does not exist without fear. In other words, you cannot access courage if you are not afraid. And fear is designed by nature to give us a proper risk assessment tool. Right, that's what fear is. It's a risk assessment tool. Uh, and so if you if I I can't stand the term fearless. I, I really can't because I think it's fearless to me sounds reckless. Okay. Um, so I was once told, beware the fearless leader because that person will get you killed because mm. that person doesn't understand how to assess risk. You have to understand and be afraid. You have to understand what this means. It, it, it keeps you from being complacent. So that was one of the best, certainly tactical piece of advice. And the other piece of advice I can't remember where it came from is just in dealing with other people and dealing on teams is, um, you know, never, uh, never assume people in other words, well, let me put this different. People, people can't see your intent; they can only see your behavior. Okay, mm-hmm. um, and so, so when we have an intention to do something, intention to, to 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 have a goal or whatever, and it could be very benevolent for people around you, um, but the but people are only seeing your behavior, and if they don't understand your intent and the behavior that they're seeing, doesn't they don't get the same vibe. <laughs> uh, that could be, there could be some, some dissonance there that, that is uncomfortable. Right. Um, so, so if you want to, if you want to, um, really operate in a very high performing fashion, you need to be very transparent about your intent. And I always kind of say, be transparent about everything, be transparent about your values, about your attributes, about your, your strengths, your weaknesses, get it all on your sleeve because that's the best way to be, because then people know exactly what to expect when they're going to lean on you and when you're going to lean on them, you know, and that's how the highest performing team, the highest performing teams operate that way. We're just very vulnerable with everything because yeah. we want everybody to know everything. Right. Um, and uh, because that's how we, we move fast. So those are probably the two pieces of advice I could. Yeah. And the communication with. is key. Um, mm-hmm. To piggyback off of what you said about fear. And I love what you said um, about be weary of, of the fearless man. I will say, and for everybody on here listening, my greatest accomplishments by far have been during the times that I have been the most scared, Mm -hmm. like where I have made decisions, where I have gone for something, where I've done it, not even knowing what I'm going to do after I get there, but just doing it. And, um, you know, some of, some of the most important decisions that we, that, that we are faced with 
uh, can be really, really scary decisions. Yeah. Um, yeah. but I just want to encourage everybody who's listening to this and who have listened, who has listened to, to rich, um, that you can make the most changes in your life by just building that courage and acting, even though you're fearful of something, yeah. um, but having the courage to, uh, to either stand through the storm or just to keep moving forward. Um, yeah. cause without a doubt, I mean, even this where American brew is rich, whenever I, I purchased this building, I said, yes, I was like, I'll buy it. I had the biggest breakdown after I bought this building because I was like, <laughs> yeah. the, it was the first time that I ever took a risk like that. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing. I never purchased a building in my life. I never ran a restaurant this big, Yeah, but, yeah. but I did it. And, um, it has been the biggest reward, um, for me. So take the risks. So, yeah, let me just, let me just, uh, let me just, um, highlight that. Cause what you said is so important. I'm just, I want to add some words to it because, uh, I'm really into human potential. I really am. That's one of the things that drives me, my own and everybody else's. Uh, and potential is always what is. It's, or excuse me, what could be. It's never what is, right? Potential is always out in front of us. We actually never reach our potential. We're always exploring our potential because potential is always out in front of us. And because of that fact, right, to explore our potential, we have to take steps outside our comfort zone. We have to go outside the circle we're in to just even see it. And anytime that's happening, there will be fear, there will be discomfort. So, so what you're talking about is, is absolutely 100% true. Um, we cannot explore our potential unless we're willing to step into discomfort and fear and uncertainty. So, and that's why, and that's why, that's why the, that's why nature has designed us that way. I mean, we are, we've gone from cave dwellers to space explorers because of this courage switch, because of this idea that we get rewarded when we step into our fear. And so I'm, I'm with you and I would encourage everybody to, to do that, step into it, um, because that's what life is is about. That's where the juice of life comes from, in my opinion. Someone who's listening to this podcast now and they're ready um, to take the next step uh, and they're interested in your program, do they need to take your assessment first or what is the first step for any listener that's that's listening to you that wants to get involved? Yeah, well, I definitely recommend read the book because the book really outlines the attributes pretty well. Um, and then if you take if you read the book, then taking the assessment will make more sense. You can certainly take the assessment first if you want, but if you read the book, then you you can go into the assessment a little bit more eyes wide open um, and see where you stand. And if you if you want to take some steps with us, it's very easy. Just there's a there's a, a work with us or contact us uh, button on the website. You can fill out a form, and we'll be. We'll, we'll, uh, my wife will, will, will reach you pretty fast because we we're, we're, we're in this together. So we're, we're, which is nice. We get to work together now. So it's, it's a team and a unit and a unit. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I have a final question to ask you. You've accomplished a lot and, and you're continuing to, um, just raise the bar on your accomplishments and, and the lives that you've been able to touch. What is the legacy that, that rich wants to leave behind? <laughs> um, I mean, if I had, if, if I were to ask what I wanted written on my tombstone, it'd be uh, husband and father. I mean, that's what's most important to me. Um, as long as my family sees me as someone who has helped them and, uh, and, and help them reach their potential, that's all I need. But, um, but if, you know, in the larger scale, I would, I would love to, to be known as someone who just helped people see some ideas differently, maybe see some things differently about themselves. Um, so that they can take, so they can explore the next level. And I mean, you know, I, I'm always, I'm always really fascinated with this idea of, of finding the next Einstein. Um, where is that Einstein? And we, you, know, you, know, you go around the world and you see some pretty bad areas and see some bad things happen to good people. Uh, and often you wonder and you see kids sometimes. You're like, man, I, that that kid probably has so much potential. It might be so smart. I mean, 
how can we get stuff to that kid so we can so we can maximize that kid's potential? And I'm just curious where those other Einsteins are. You know, who the who are the people in our planet, our planet who are going to solve the next big problems? Whatever it is, intergalactic travel, um, you know, uh, the you know, curing cancer, you know, you know, longevity problems, things like that. Um, I'm interested in. I'm not that person, <laughs> you know. But if I can do things that maybe help that person find their own way, man, that would be a great legacy to have. Mm. That's really, really powerful. Really powerful. Yeah. I mean, there's so much potential out there and I believe it's all around us, but I, I, people have to want to search for their own potential and continue to strive for that to really truly see what they're capable of. Totally. And have resources to do it because sometimes people are just in survival mode. They just don't have, they don't have time to do it. Mm -hmm. So Hey, man. Well, thank you so much for joining me on today's Reborn Podcast. It's certainly been a pleasure having you on today. Um, stop by American Brew sometime. I totally will. And you can be like, totally just put my, put my tab on uh, Ashley's Ashley's name. <laughs> so, um, all right, man. Well, thank you once again for coming on the Reborn Podcast. Um, I have a question, though. Did you ever fly back from or did you ever rent a car from either New York or Boston and pick up a random person? to drive back with you? No. Okay. There's this, huh? Oh, there's this like, I think it was like 20, it would have been around 2017. Um, I flew into what I was trying, I was up in New York modeling for Reebok, I think, and our flights got canceled. And um, it was me by myself and I was trying to get back to Virginia Beach and I was in line to rent a car and there was a group of three guys and they're like, oh, we're going back to Virginia Beach too. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the worst like decision that you can make. But it was through the night and there was a snowstorm coming. So I felt like my chances of survival would be a lot better if I was in a group of people. Anyways, it was one of the craziest and like probably dumbest things that I, um, (laughs) that I did. But, um, but yeah, the, the guys were in the community for sure. I just sat in the back with my mouth shut. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's good. That's cool. That's good Good Samaritan stuff, but uh, it's good to hear that it happens. That's great. Yeah. All right, man. Hey, have a great day. Enjoy the weather with your family and just best of luck with everything that you're doing and your success. And uh, I know so many people can benefit, especially with everything that's going on in the world. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to meet you. I'll stop by the place and, uh, and we'll keep in touch. All right. Thanks, Rich. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening to the Reborn podcast today with Ashley Horner. Make sure that you follow and leave us a review on the Apple podcast. You can follow me on the Instagram at Reborn pod. Make sure you follow Rich, take his free assessment that's available for you. Um, And at the end of the day, guys, just don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone to really explore what is your true potential. Um, we all have so much potential within us. Um, we just have to sometimes step out of that place of, of comfort and, uh, really just explore what is out there and what are we truly, truly good at and how far can we go? Uh, my name is Ashley Horner. Thank you again for joining me with the reborn podcast with ironclad. We will get you guys next week. Bye.